Will you turn with me, please, to the passage that we read together, and I draw your attention to verses 33 and 34 of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now when we begin Romans chapter 8, we see that it forms the climax of Paul's arguing his reasoning up to that point. He has been demonstrating the universality of the sinfulness of man. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He has demonstrated that there is only one way of salvation for Jew and Gentile alike, and that is the finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, he demonstrated um, uh, uh, from the example of Abraham what it is to be justified by faith. And uh, that is where he emphasizes um, our focus. That is where we are to look to Christ himself. Chapter 8, as it continues, draws various inferences from the fact of the no condemnation from the fact of that salvation and justification through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Verse 12 speaks about um, the obligation that we have. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. And he demonstrates that uh, the true life of a believer is a life that is uh, the following after Christ and not a following after uh, the world. In verse 15, he goes on to speak of that glorious theme of adoption into the family of God. And he reminds us that salvation is not simply salvation from the wrath to come. It is salvation unto the family of God. It is looking forward to the absolute consummation of that adoptive process, or that adoptive act, rather, that will bring us at last into the presence of God, faultless before him, looking, uh, appearing, even as Christ. Beloved, we know not what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then, as he moves on, he speaks about the glorious provisions that have been made in that plan of salvation. He speaks about um, uh, the calling of God according to his purpose, the foreknowledge of God, the predestination of God, uh, and uh, the justification of God, and all of these wonderful privileges that befall those who are the children of God when they are called into union with Jesus Christ. And here, the verses that we're looking at, the, 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 uh, ends the chapter with two challenges. The two questions that are asked, who shall condemn? 
and who shall separate? They're almost like um, uh, rhetorical questions because they are immediately answered. Who shall condemn? It is God that justifieth. Who's going to condemn in the face of the justification of God? And who um, uh, shall separate us? Well, who's going to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And so these two verses are looking at those challenges. Who shall condemn? And he's already told us right at the beginning, there is therefore now no condemnation. This is him ramming home the truth of this. And he is going to emphasize the inseparability of the people of God from the Savior himself. No one is able to separate us from the love of God. And it is on the basis of um, uh, these verses, I want us to look at what these verses teach us concerning um, election, the election of God, of a people to himself. And the first thing I want you to notice is that if you are in Christ, you are God's elect. There are no elect um, uh, uh, except those who are elect in Christ. And so, if you are elect, you are, sorry, if you are in Christ, you are God's elect. Now, we need to set this term, um, the elect, against the background of the various different names that we are called in Scripture if we are children of God. Uh, the Scripture gives many names to the Christian, speaks about children, uh, the children of God. And in that uh, context, it is reminding us of this wonderful family that we are brought into by grace. It is reminding us of the elder brother. It is reminding us of our fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. It is reminding us of the father's care and compassion for his family, his, um, uh, his chastening discipline, his provision for them, his tender mercies towards them. And you could open that up and you would find more than enough for um, a number of sermons, even in that name. We are children of God. We are called sheep. And in being called sheep, again, you have um, uh, the uh, significance of that name for a, a child of God. From our perspective, it is a reminder to us of our waywardness, of our folly. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We know that we are often sheep-like in our following of sin. We are often thoughtless um, as those who are called to follow the good shepherd. But there is the other side of this whole notion of sheep. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. And it speaks to us there of the shepherd's care and concern, provision, protection, and at last leading us to glory and all the things that accrue to us because he is our shepherd. You think of the fact that we are sometimes called saints of God. And saints particularly emphasizes the need for separation for the children of God. 
Uh, you cannot sit comfortably with the world and be a true child of God. That is brought out again and again in this chapter. If we are Christ's, we have crucified uh, the flesh with the affections thereof. And so we are called to a life of consecration, a life of separation and service unto God. We are sometimes called believers, and there the emphasis is upon our faith. And we see that dealt with um, uh, in chapters 4 and 5 um, of this very book. But here is a special name, the elect of God. We are those who are um, elect, who uh, um, shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect. And this is a name that reaches all the way back to eternity. Even before we were ever created, uh, there was that election of God. Even before we ever drew a breath in this world, there was that election of God. Because it is an election of God in Christ. And in the councils of eternity, the Saviour himself undertook to redeem his elect unto himself. You remember how Jesus puts it in the upper room discourse? Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and I have kept them. And what is he going to do with that kept elect of God? He is going to present them faultless before the throne with exceeding joy, holy, harmless, undefiled like himself, perfectly clothed in the righteousness which is his own. And the doctrine of election, hated by some, but it is clear as the nose in your face in Scripture. You cannot read the Bible without the whole idea of God choosing a people to himself. Whether you're thinking of Israel or whether you're thinking of the saints of God, God has chosen a people. And it is um, uh, that choice um, of God that we have before us here. But you'll notice the close proximity in this chapter between the idea of being the elect of God and living as those who are in Christ. There is not one without the other. A true child of God um, uh, will live as a true child of God. They will walk in Christ. Now, of course, um, uh, uh, this... Um, uh, uh, we see this effectual calling that is mentioned um, uh, in uh, uh, verse uh, 30. That calling, whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. And it is in that context that we have to see that Certain things are true when we are called into the family of God. We are not simply, as it were, united to Christ, end of story. We know that we were convicted of our sin and misery. We were brought to see our separation from God. We were brought to that point where we had no hope in salvation out with the grace of God. All of these things are true. We were persuaded 
as our wills were in, renewed by the Spirit of God to embrace Christ as he was freely offered in the gospel. Our wills were persuaded. Our wills were um, enabled to embrace him. In other words, what he's saying in all of this is that the elect of God are known by their fruit. The elect of God are those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Those who are chosen in Christ and called in this life will be uh, those who walk in Christ. And that is the outcome of our being called and united to him. So when we think of the elect, we have to remember that there are evidences of that in the life of a true believer. But when we come to the text here, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Because what I want us to think about is not so much what it is to be elect, but I want you to think about the security that we have in Christ as the elect of God. I know that again and again God's people have bouts where they are afraid perhaps they have sinned themselves out of God's grace. Or they're growing cold and insipid in their religion and they wonder if indeed they are at all the children of God. And this passage is something that helps us in this. Let us look at it. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Now the first thing that we have to notice regarding that uh, question is this. That the elect referred to in the first instance is not the people of God. It is Christ himself. He is the elect of God. He is near, he say, uh, says Isaiah in 50 verses 8 to 9. He is near that justifieth me. And then in uh, Isaiah 42 verse 1 he says, Behold mine elect whom I uphold. Now this is absolutely central and fundamental to understanding the security of the children of God. We have to start with the fact that Christ is God's elect. And that is why the, the, the question is so stark. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? We're going to see in a moment that there's plenty of people who would lay a charge against ourselves. But who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And the answer, it's God that justifies. You see, here we are reminded that we are elect in Christ. He is the elect, if you will, with a capital E. We are the elect if we're in Christ with a little uh, E. I don't need to tell you, but I'm going to say it nevertheless, that if you are elect, it's not because you chose Christ. We are not elect because we are holy. We are not even elect because God saw that we would be holy. We are not elect because we have faith. It's not our faith that makes us holy, uh, uh, elect rather. It's not that I've got good feelings towards God that makes me elect if I'm in Christ. 
If I am an, uh, if I am elect, it is because of God's sovereign choice. It is because before I ever was, before you ever were, God chose us in Christ. That's where our security lies. It doesn't lie in your faith. It doesn't lie in your behavior. It doesn't lie in your goodwill towards God. You have to see this reference all the way back to behold mine elect whom I uphold. Look at Christ. For there is the one who can answer the challenge. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Well, none can lay any challenge to that. The elect of God, that is Christ. By nature, before we were called, we may have been elect, but before we were called, we were children of wrath, even as others. We were without God and without hope in the world. And it wasn't until the Spirit of Christ in time united us to Christ that we knew the power of the elect that is Christ himself. So if you are in Christ, you are God's elect because Christ himself is the elect of God and every saint of God is elect in him. The second thing I want to draw out from this is that as elect, and now I'm speaking about the children of God and not so much the, uh, the uh, Lord himself as the elect of God, but the children of God, as elect, you are not beyond accusation, but you are beyond the possibility of condemnation. You get that? You're not beyond accusation, but you are beyond the possibility of condemnation. Hence, the first words of this chapter, there is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. You see, that question, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, if you think of it <clears throat> as referring to the saints in the first instance, you might think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm free from condemnation. I've got no sin. Really? Every true Christian here knows that they are sinners. Every true Christian here knows that if God were to mark iniquity, none of us could stand. And so we can't just say, well, I'm free from condemnation because I've got no sin. So sin... Um, uh, still is within the believer. Romans chapter 7, the previous chapter, shows us that up until our last breath, we are engaged in a warfare where the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, where the good that I would I do not and the evil that I would not that I do. That's going to be our lot till the end of our days. And so sin, remaining sin, the seed of corruption, is not removed. The condemnation is removed. But it doesn't mean that they are, that we are without sin. Why is this so important? 
Because if you think that you are not condemned because of yourself, your faith, your trust, your commitment to God, your sanctification, then you're not going to be able to deal with falling into sin. How are you going to answer this? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What have you sinned grievously? What hope do you have if your hope is built upon yourself? But when it is built on Christ, then we have the same security that Christ has. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Again, this question Uh, while it doesn't imply that we are without sin, it doesn't imply that there is nothing in you that deserves condemnation. Because the fact is that there is much in us that deserves condemnation. That's why the Father chastens us. That's why we have to go through a process of sanctification. That's why the good that we would, we do not. The evil that we would not, that we do Because there is much within us that deserves to be condemned. And that's why, as I've quoted before, if God marks iniquity, who could stand? And it's a saint of God that's saying that. This isn't a heathen, unconverted man that's saying that. This is David the psalmist. If God were to turn his eyes to my sin, I would have no hope. But if our confidence and our security as the elect of God is resting upon the elect, that is Christ, then who can lay any charge to his charge? We've got sin. And he took our sin. But he is without condemnation because he dealt with that sin. And so it is that there is much in us that deserves condemnation. The fact that there is no condemnation is due to the free grace of God and our position in Jesus Christ. Sheltering under the blood. Sheltering under the righteousness of God in Christ. Again, the question doesn't imply that you have no accusers. If you stand forth and shout, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? I'm a Christian. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? You'll be drowned out by the response. Because there are so many that could lay something to our charge. Our own conscience will probably be the first to, be the first to condemn us. Oh, you didn't do what you should have done. You've done what you shouldn't have done. The good that I would, the evil that I would not. That is my own self-condemnation. I know that in me, says Paul, dwelleth no good thing. And that's how it is with every true saint of God. Again, other Christians could condemn us. They will see faults in us. They will see that we fall short of the glory of God, that we are not as sanctified as we should be, that there are inconsistencies and outright sin. The world will condemn us, and they'll condemn us whether their condemnation is fair or or unjust. They will condemn us. It doesn't matter whether you are as white as the driven snow. They will condemn you as a Christian. 
But the fact is that often their condemnation is justified. Often their condemnation is justified. They look upon us, and what do they see? Do they see Christ? Or is it not true that they see so much that is sinful? Satan will accuse us. Do you remember that passage in Zechariah where um, uh, Joshua the high priest stands in his filthy garments? There's no pretense. That's what he is. He's clothed in filthy garments. And Satan stands at his side to accuse him because he's the accuser of the brethren. And it is only the intervention of God himself that takes away the filthy garments and clothes him with righteousness that stops the mouth of Satan. And he'll be back. And even although we cast ourselves upon the mercies of God and find that no condemnation that flows from trusting to him, he will be back to accuse us. He'll dredge up the past. Forgiven sins will be cast up into our faces. He will continue to condemn. So there are plenty of accusers. And what is the reason? None of them can condemn you. It is because a sufficient atonement has been made for each and every one of our sins. You see why it's so important to understand who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect. And what is more, the addition of those words, it is God that justifieth, is telling us that this no condemnation verdict is holy and just and fair and right. For Christ has done all things well. He has finished the work that the Father gave him to do. He laid down his life as a ransom for his people that was acceptable and accepted by the Father. And so all who are in him come under, as it were, the skirts of his holy garment of righteousness. And they stand before God only in Christ as those who can say, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Dear friends, when you fall into sin and you look to yourself, you'll find no comfort. When you fall into sin and you look to Christ, you are able to say, Christ has paid the penalty. Christ has covered my sin. Christ has dealt with it. What an assurance. What a comfort that no man can lay anything to the charge of God's elect. If you are in Christ, God doesn't condemn you, but he justifies you. You remember that great exchange that Paul speaks of in Romans 5, uh, uh, sorry, in 2 Corinthians 5:21. He made him who knew no sin, that is Christ, to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the reality. I'm sure many of you have heard that Luther once said sin boldly. Now he wasn't encouraging us to go out to sin. What he was saying was this. 
that having sinned, flee to Christ. Having sinned, look to his perfect righteousness. That's what we need. Too often when we backslide, too often when we sin, too often when we um, uh, uh, become cold and indifferent to the things of God, we look at ourselves, we see a miserable process uh, or a miserable progress in our sanctification. We think, how can I be a Christian? Dear friends, it's out of that if you're in Christ. The question you should be asking in those miserable uh, conditions is this. Has Christ paid a sufficient ransom? Are you going to condemn Christ for falling short when God himself justifies him? It is Christ that died. But he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. You see, God alone could free us from condemnation it is christ that it is god that justifieth no other has the right to pass that verdict upon us but god himself we cannot justify ourselves woe betide the man or the woman who takes refuge in that false hope but it is god who justifies and woe betide the Christian who takes up the argument against God that he's got no right to justify. Not that any surely would be stupid enough to try. God's judgment carries in it not only that verdict of condemnation, uh, no condemnation, but it carries in it the non-imputation of our sin. It's very difficult for us to imagine how our present and future sin can all be bundled up together and dealt with in Christ. But it has been. If we confess our sins, says First John, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Past, present, future you see, God doesn't turn a blind eye to your sin, to my sin. What he does as he, is he pronounces a verdict upon our condition, our status. And that status is a status that is based upon the fact that the law is satisfied, that holy justice had, has been met, that Christ has fulfilled all that was required by God for the elect. And so we are reminded that God deals with sin. He deals with sin thoroughly and completely in Christ. And that is where our comfort and security as Christians has to lie. But the other wonderful thing is this. It's not just that God doesn't impute sin to us anymore, but that he imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. It's not just there is now therefore no condemnation, but you have to take your chances, make sure you don't fall into sin again, otherwise you'll end up being condemned again. It is there is now therefore no condemnation. Why? Because you are righteous in Christ. You are righteous in Christ. 
There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus the Lord. And that's just the negative way of saying there is justification of those who are in Christ Jesus the Lord. It's a declarative act of God. It's a declarative act of God that renders us in the realm of no condemnation. It is not something on our side. It is not that I have managed to reach a level of holiness that makes me ready and uh, uh, deserving of the mercy of God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that is equally true regarding each one of us. Before you ever had the least good thought of God, God was dealing with you, dealing with your case. And when we come before God, we have nothing to bring, nothing to bring but Christ and Christ alone. And then he asks the question, and this is uh, more briefly, who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Do you see the foundation upon which our justification rests? It doesn't rest on our self-confidence, but it's much more secure than that. You see how it develops it. Who shall separate us? Well, it's not simply um, uh, that God has justified, but he goes on to tease this out. And he deals with the 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 life and the death of Christ and the ascension. It is Christ that died. Why is there no condemnation? It is Christ that died. <laughs> Yea, that is risen again, the evidence, who is even at the right hand of God, the ascension, who also maketh intercession for us. Let's look at these. The foundation upon which our justification rests is that Christ has died. He has offered a perfect sacrifice um, and satisfaction for God's justice. It's an all-sufficient atonement. There's nothing you or I can add to it, nor need to add to it. He has done it all. Sometimes, you know, we deal, we deal with ourselves. We think to ourselves that we are still guilty before God. We might still be sinners before God. And our sins are those um, uh, things that deserve the chastening of God. But Christ has dealt with the guilt. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't feel guilty. I'm talking objectively here. Our sins have been pardoned. And we need to remember that if we are in Christ, we have the righteousness of God before the Father's throne. It's the righteousness of God in Christ. There's no better righteousness than that. The righteousness of God in Christ. You can't have a higher righteousness that of God himself, that which he accepts, and we are made acceptable in the, in the beloved. 
It is Christ that died. So there is the dying work of the Savior. Deals with our sin. But how do we know that it really dealt with our sins? It is Christ that is risen. You see, the grave could not hold him. He, as it were, exhausted the demands of the law upon his people. He finished the work. He rose again from the dead, an evidence of his sonship, a proof of the completion of the redemptive work of God and also of the acceptance of that work because he is ultimately, as we will see, received up into glory. You see, the surety is free from the bands of death because the debt was paid. Nothing more was due to Christ for his people's sin. It was all dealt with. And we are free from the curse of the law because the law has been satisfied and the debt has been paid by Christ. So Christ died. That's the foundation work. He is risen, the evidence that the work was acceptable. He is exalted as a reward for his obedience. Thou art gone up on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, even for the rebellious. Why? That the Lord God might dwell among them. That's what an elect child of God is. A person in whom God dwells. The temple of the Holy Spirit the one who is animated and motivated by the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them. You see, the highest place of honor is bestowed upon Christ. He is seated at the right hand of God. You would think that a wonderful thing, that your Savior is seated at the right hand of God. But you know, there's something even can we say, more wonderful with respect to ourselves. Because Paul in Ephesians tells us not only that we died together with Christ, not only that we were raised together with Christ, but we are seated, and that's a present, we are seated with Christ at the right hand of God. That, dear friends, is how God treats you as one who is at his right hand in Christ. What can accusers do when God takes his people to sit together with Christ in the heavenly places? And what are we to do with all that sin that remains in us and we struggle with day by day? This is speaking about our glorious status before God. But what's about the place where the rubber meets the road. How do we deal with all that sin that still remains? How do we deal with the good that we would not doing? He also makes intercession for us. He prays for us. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's a high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Remember again how John puts it, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, even for the sins of the whole world. 
Oh, dear friends, this is why there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Who would dare to lay accusation against Christ as God's elect? Who would dare to do so when God himself has justified him? Who would dare, um, uh, uh, as it were, um, uh, to um, uh, try and break that bond that exists when Christ, who is our life, has been crucified, raised, exalted, and now sits at the right hand of God. You see, the Christian security doesn't lie in this world anymore. Never did. The Christian security lies in heaven. And the Christian can only be torn out of the hand of God if someone can tear Christ from the right hand of God. You remember how in John chapter 10, John uh, Christ speaks about the saints of God, the sheep being in the Father's hands, and no man can pluck them out of his hand. And then he says, no man can pluck them out of my hand. A two-fold grip on the children of God. That's where Christian security lies, dear friends. We are safe and secure in Christ, seated at the right hand of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we bless thee and we thank thee for these glorious truths. How much our own hearts condemn us, but God is greater than our hearts and knoweth all things. He knows that he has justified Christ. He knows that Christ has done all things well, that Christ has paid the penalty for his people's sin. He knows that in Christ we are seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we pray, O oh God, that we would take comfort from this. Enable us, Lord, in the light of this, to walk in the Spirit, to walk in Christ, that we might turn away from wickedness and evil, and the, that we might crucify the flesh with the affections and lusts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We conclude singing a few verses from Psalm 73. Psalm 73, and we'll sing verses 23 to 26. Nevertheless, continually, O Lord, I am with thee. Thou dost me hold by my right hand, and still upholdest me. Thou with thy counsel, while I live, wilt me conduct and guide, and to thy glory afterward receive me to abide. Verses 23 to 26. <clears throat> Yeah.
of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all.